0: Welcome to ASD Engage, a podcast for families of children who are currently waiting for an autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, assessment. I'm Dr. Heidi Kiefer, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I'm Maureen
1: Mosley, a psychometrist. And I'm Sean Brumby, also a psychometrist. We work on teams that assess children for ASD at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Each episode, we will present a topic that reflects concerns brought forward by families we work with. You'll hear information regarding the assessment process and insights and information from a variety of specialists. And more importantly, we'll talk directly to families who share some of their personal stories with us, in an effort to help guide you through the assessment process. Welcome to Episode 3 of ASD Engage. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how it feels to hear from a clinician that your child has ASD. In this episode, we'll speak some more with Adrienne, a parent who shares her family's experience of receiving an autism diagnosis for her daughter. We'll also talk with Dr. Abby about communicating the diagnosis in an effort to help our parents understand what the process might look like. Our first guest joining us by phone is Dr. Abby Solish, a psychologist here at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital and the Autism Research Center. Welcome, Abby.
2: Thank you, it's so nice to be here.
1: So to start off, could you tell us a bit about what you do here at Holland Bloorview?
2: Sure, so um, here at Holland Bloorview, I have a couple of different roles. One of my roles is doing diagnostic assessments for young kids with suspected ASD or other developmental concerns. Those kids usually range between the ages of about 18 months and four and a half years. And in my role there, um, I see children and their families and provide um, assessment around potential diagnostic concerns. The other role that I have is running cognitive behavioral therapy groups for children with ASD and anxiety. And finally, I work at the Autism Research Centre, supporting a number of different research projects looking at early intervention and early diagnosis for kids with ASD.
1: That's great. Um, you're a busy woman. Um, I'd like to introduce our second guest, Adrian. Adrian is a mom to a daughter who's been diagnosed with ASD. Thank you so much for joining us, Adrian. Can you start off by telling us a bit about your family?
3: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So, my husband and I have two daughters. They are now nine and 10. Um, My nine year old was diagnosed with autism when she was two. Um, And my 10 year old was diagnosed with ADHD when she was nine.
1: Adrian, in our first episode, we shared a clip of you describing the pre diagnosis weight your first appointment with the pediatrician and ultimately receiving an ASD diagnosis for your daughter, Amira. Can you tell us what it felt like when you first heard those words that your daughter was being diagnosed with ASD?
3: When she was being diagnosed with AD, ASD, I, it sounds really strange, but I was relieved
0: mm-hmm.
3: because we'd had a discussion about, you know, it could be ASD, it could be global developmental delay, which was explained to me as, you know, a constellation of delays that we don't really understand um, and don't have really specific treatments for. um, And that seemed a scarier place to be for us. So, and as I, you know, learned that autism may be what she ended up having, you know, I started reading and checking the boxes. And in my mind, it, it didn't make sense that it would be anything other than ASD once I had read a lot and lo- and kind of pieced things together. So at that point, I was very relieved to hear it. When it was first introduced to me, I was incredibly scared and, and um, upset and sad and angry and um, like a f- myriad of emotions. Uh, because it was something I had never thought about before and didn't know, I didn't have any personal, um, relation to someone, uh, with autism spectrum disorder. So I, it sounds embarrassed to say that, you know, the movie Rain Man was probably the only reference that I had to autism, which is horrible, but that's the way it was. So back then it was very overwhelming. Mm-hmm.
1: And can you tell us how receiving that diagnosis changed things for your family?
3: I, You know, I think you have children and there's this boundless opportunity and boundless potential. Um, you just assume that um, there will be every opportunity in the world and that you and your child can choose any path that you like. And I think sometimes there's some arrogance of, as a new parent and i i can just say for myself this arrogance of well you know we can do you know we can kind of go any direction we want we can be in any environment we want we can it's it's our choice quote unquote um versus being a bit more sensitive to who your child really is um what what makes them happy what brings them joy what is uh, stressful for them and not stressful for them Um, And then structuring your life based on that versus what you have decided you think you want to do or what you think you want your family to do. So we've moved from a place of thinking we could kind of prescribe the way our family would move um, and move to a place of, okay, hold on a second. (laughs) We don't really get to decide how our children are going to develop. Um, we need to learn um, what works for them and where their strengths and weaknesses are, and how we can support them um, and work with them and see the joy that they see, and and really find joy in that instead of looking for the joy that we had decided was going to come of raising these children.
0: So I want to know for you what's the difference between you as a pre-diagnosis mom and a post-diagnosis mom?
3: Ugh, a big one. It's, I mean, it's almost embarrassing to say, to to think about kind of my my arrogance to be really honest, prior to not appreciating um, kind of the diversity of development in children um, and to not appreciating that the children and especially kids with neurodevelopmental disorders have these unique gifts deep down in there um, that when you get to, especially if it takes a long, hard road to get there, are incredible um, so satisfying and gratifying as a parent to see kind of blossom, and also bring such um, depth to, to 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 people around them and to the world around them um, that I think is tough to uh, to um, to see when kids don't struggle, you know. And so now I you know I see. Um, Amira overcoming things and the littlest success is a really big deal for her and it's a really big deal for me and that's so satisfying um, but I also see other people who initially may have cocked their heads at her differences um, start to appreciate the nuances and the, the little crazy quirks of her um, despite the fact that you know there's still things that she struggles with and for them to start to see and appreciate those things. And I think to myself, had, the, had she not been kind of our teacher, we would not have learned that, those lessons. And I would not have learned to look for, you know, those really simple characteristics in kids that just bring that, that goodness in them um, had I not had a kid that struggled. So I think I'm a um, more compassionate reflective person and had i not um had had a Mira, i don't know that i would have found any other way to get there so at this point granted seven years later <laughs> um i i wouldn't trade it for the world um but that's not to say that when she was first diagnosed i wouldn't have told you that i would have you know like to close my eyes and pretend this had never happened and had you given me the chance to just make this not so I would have jumped up and said please let's do that yeah yeah it
0: takes time yeah yeah so dr. Solish like we've we spent some time talking to Adrian about what it was like for her to to get the diagnosis to receive that information what's it like for you on your end when you're giving that diagnosis It's such a good question. You know, I think
2: what it's like depends, again, a lot on each family and what the family has brought to you in terms of their readiness to be there and their experiences to date. So I feel like a whole bunch of different emotions come up for me when I'm providing the diagnosis, depending on the pathway to how I've gotten to the diagnosis. So I can expand on that um, and just give you a little more information about what I mean. But I think for me that there are some parents who come in and they're very. it's very clear to them why they're there, that they're really the ones driving this ship and saying, I went to my doctor and I'm concerned and I've been doing this reading and this is where I'm at and what do you think? Please validate my experiences and my challenges that I'm having. And I feel like in, in those moments, the diagnosis, I can... For the parents, that there's of course all of the emotions that only a parent can describe best, as Adrian just had, but there's also that sense of like, I was right, my concerns were taken seriously, and, and I, it, it's been validating for me to engage in this kind of process. So, in that case, for me delivering the diagnosis, I feel like um, it's a bit of an easier job because I'm I, it's very easy to align with the parents. I think there are some parents who come in and aren't really sure how they got there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like um, for Adrian, there was a long conversation with a primary care physician. For some of our families, that hasn't been translated to them. So they're unsure, why am I here? You know, I think that my child has a language delay. I don't see any need for this ongoing assessment. There's a history of late talkers in my family. And I think for those families, setting up from the beginning the expectation of why they're there, what I'm looking at, what we're doing, and really building that rapport and taking them along the diagnostic journey from my perspective is is really important. And in those cases, you know, I think my emotion in providing the diagnosis feels a little bit different because I know that that readiness and that understanding um, of why they're there and, and what the experiences have been is a little bit different. So I think for me, you know, obviously it's my job as a professional to remain um, cool, calm and collected. I think it's also my job as a professional to communicate that diagnosis with warmth and empathy and and compassion. Um, But I think what I'm feeling deep down inside really depends on what emotions a family has elicited in in me um, along the little journey that we have gone on to get to that point.
0: So a uh, question for um, both Doctor Abby and you, Adrian, and maybe we'll start with you, Adrian. So kids and parents and families are coming in and there's a possibility of feeling a bit intimidated when you're working with a developmental pediatrician or you might be working with a psychologist or home blur view uh, a nurse practitioner. Who is the expert during the
3: assessment process? <laughs> I I would say um that that the parent and the family um, is the expert because they have the most experience with the child um, and that as a family you should feel confident about that and also I would like to say because it's true in our family structure that um, that siblings often can be experts in this area <laughs> um, and so Amira has an older sister Aaliyah who uh, could likely have given most, if not all, of the information to oh, clinicians wow. about you know, what she observes about her sister on a daily basis. So I think regardless of their title, people, the people who spend the most time and are most focused uh, on a child are the people who are probably best able to speak to uh, their realities and therefore the experts, quote-unquote.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting to think like you mentioned that there's like not a big age difference between Amira and her sister Aaliyah and yet Aaliyah is like a great reporter. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and what about you, Doctor Abby? Who do you think is the expert during the assessment process?
2: Um, I couldn't agree more with what Adrian just said. It's really my approach when working with families that one of the first things that I want them to know is that I have expertise and training in child development and in early diagnostic and diagnostic questions, but it's really a collaborative process between professional and parents. And parents really are the experts on their children. You know, we are getting such a small window into the life of a family and the life of a child during our assessments. and. I, as a professional and as a parent, am so aware of how different a child can look in a clinic setting than what they may look like out in the real world, be it at home or in the community or at a child care setting. And I think our only way to reliably access that information is through parents. So I believe really strongly that in setting up the initial discussion with the family, that they need to know that they are an equal player in this assessment process and that they are the experts on their children, and that this assessment can't happen without them and can't happen without their insights and their observations. And so I think it's a true partnership and a true collaboration, and I want parents to feel empowered and confident that their knowledge of their children is an integral part of the assessment process.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, another question for for both of you as well. So, and again, starting off with Adrian, um, in some assessments, um, well, so thinking about some of the assessments that I do, um, and this would hold true uh, for, for Dr. Abby as well, uh, we will talk to daycare or school teachers. And one thing I've consciously changed about the discussion uh, with those individuals is that I start by asking about what the child's strengths are. And sometimes it's interesting because sometimes the teacher is thrown a bit because they're often used to being asked about what are the delays or what is going wrong with the child. And it's really easy to fall into thinking that assessments are focused on deficits or weaknesses. And I'm wondering, starting with you, Adrian, how can that perspective be shifted, do you think?
3: Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, Because as a parent, I think you're naturally stressed about what isn't happening and less focused on what is happening and i mean by default you're you're interacting with healthcare professionals because you need to know you want to understand the things that in your mind aren't right quote unquote and less inclined to spend time talking about what is going well um, but I can, I mean, I can say now being, what are we, seven years into this, that that is necessary and that, um, helps put into perspective, um, the child being a whole person and not just a constellation of things that are wrong with them. Uh, but I can say that it naturally, it was, it, it was hard to go there because I felt like I didn't want to spend the time talking about the things that were going well because I was so... Um torn up about the things that were quote unquote wrong, and I wanted help to again quote unquote change the things that weren't uh, that weren't uh, typical, so it's hard to do yeah
0: um
3: and I think I, I love the idea that um, that healthcare providers are trying to nudge us in that direction, but as a parent who is in the initial stages, I remember that feeling really uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. So yes, there, there really is a, like a trajectory that you're talking about. So there is a period maybe when you are kind of focused on a more of what's not happening.
3: Yes. Yes. And then as I think as you appreciate um, the strengths in your child and feel better capable of managing, um, then you start to appreciate the really beautiful things about your child, um, but that takes time. That
0: takes time. Yeah. And for you, Doctor Abby, how do you think that perspective can be shifted? Um,
2: I agree with Adrian that it's, it's probably challenging for some families to really be focused on the positive when you've been brought into an environment that inherently is anxiety-provoking and scary and challenging and. And like Adrian mentioned, the reason that you're there is because you or someone else has expressed concern um, about your child. I, you know, I, I think it is important, and I always make sure that I ask parents, you know, what do you see as your child's strengths? What seems to be going well? Um, and even if that's not the thing at the forefront for families during the diagnostic process, I really make sure that in my feedback with parents, that instilling that hope and that optimism and that positivity is a piece in the diagnostic process. So, of course, there's the news of receiving ASD, and I really think the way it's delivered that I, I, or what I strive to do in the delivery of the diagnosis is to help families see that this isn't the end, that there is so much that you can still be hopeful for, while simultaneously recognizing that for some families, the news of the diagnosis can be really devastating and really overwhelming and really scary.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting, like talking about empowering, uh, empowering the parents, because it sounds like you're, you're also really conveying like a, like a sense of agency. The parents like can do stuff and that they've been doing stuff that's, that's really been helping their child along the way as well.
2: Yeah, I find it's actually, you know, every feedback that I do is different because every family that I meet is different and every child is different. But one of the things that I really do want parents to leave with is that sense of empowerment, knowing that they're making good choices. I mean, just by being brave enough to receive, you know, a referral and be able to show up for that appointment and sit in the office in front of somebody and talk about what's hard for your child that takes courage and there's often situations where other people are saying he's young I mean I see a lot of really young kids but he or she is young you know it takes time she'll talk don't worry about it and I think just by parents following through and saying no I'm gonna go through with this process and I'm going to go through with the assessment I think that takes courage and I think that that's parents really making a a good choice for their child and I think they need to know that they've but they've made a good
0: choice just by being there. Yeah. And that, that comment about, um, helping parents to see kind of like the bravery and the choices they they've made. I think that really ties back to what you were saying earlier, Adrian, about like having to trust your gut. Yeah. Right.
3: Yeah. And, and take in, but filter, um, opinions of people who may not spend as much time with your child as you do and who may have not have as much information as you may, once you start to look into the diagnosis of autism, because um, yeah, I've, I've heard so many times. She, I'm, I'm sure she's just the quiet one. You know, she'll speak eventually. Oh, your older one is the outgoing. <laughs> she's just the shy one. Um, so it, it took a little, uh, a little time, but also some conviction to say, okay, you know what, but I've, I've done some reading. I've spoke, I've, you know, I've interacted with professionals. I'm seeing these things that are subtle and that might not be apparent to everybody. And I'm going to trust that because I've spent the time and I'm connected to people who have spent the time to appreciate these, these little nuances.
0: Yeah.
3: And I always want to say to parents, you know,
2: you are the one that knows best. I mean, at the end of the day, parents, really do know best and they are the ones who spend the most time with their children and i think any good profen- professional is really going to take into account first and foremost first and foremost you know what is the parent sharing what are they disclosing and and what have they observed because I've heard too many stories of parents who have said, I, you know, I've gone to my doctor countless times and I've mentioned the language delay or I spoke to this person and they said, oh, just wait and see, just wait and see. And I think there are many parents out there who are advocating for these type of services for their child and to be able to get an assessment. And so I think for those parents, it does. It takes it takes a lot of strength strength and it takes a lot of conviction to be able to say I'm going to do this and I'm going to go through with it and even though this is hard and scary this is the right thing and I think we really have to make sure that we trust parents instincts and we trust parents opinions and that we really again empower them to know that they're such an important part of this process.
0: Um, I have a, a couple questions for you Dr. Abby one of them that you just made me think of now how young is too young? for an assessment? Because it's interesting, I was just talking with parents uh, the other day when we were making some calls, and one of the parents said, well, my doctor said that my child is too young at three for an assessment. How young is
1: too
2: young? A very good question, Maureen. You know, and again, not one where it's necessarily black and white. Um, I think, I think diagnosing really young kids with ASD takes a certain level of sensitivity and understanding of a parent's perspective. But I don't really ever think too young is is a thing. So we're diagnosing kids now, you know, at a, at one and a half, um, as part of the research study that we're doing, where we're looking at um, younger siblings, baby siblings who have an older sibling with a diagnosis. We're following development over time. And, you know, I don't think I would ever diagnose a child, let's say, under 12 months, um, or I never have. I should never say never. Um, You know, around 15 months, you may start seeing some of the more concerning behaviors, and there are children who were diagnosed around then. Um, Certainly from 18 months and and up, I don't think there there is a too young. And I think, you know, if somebody be it a professional, a daycare worker, a speech-language pathologist, or even more so a parent, is saying something is not quite right. My answer to any parent who asks me that, um, be it friends and family, be it people who come to me professionally, is it's better to follow that instinct and to go through with receiving some kind of evaluation. And if it's too early to make a diagnosis, because some children will present more clear signs earlier on and some it will take a little bit of time till they're developing, maybe closer to two, two and a half, three, and then, you know, some kids as they even continue to get older. um, You know, there's always the idea of of ongoing monitoring and looking out for certain behaviours and development. But I really, I don't think there is a too young. I think if, especially if the concerns are being driven by a parent, um, I would say why not take a look at what those concerns are. And if they're coming forward from a professional and a child, let's say, Is three or two or two and a half you know I wouldn't I wouldn't delay Um, you know it's really my approach to assessment and to life really that sitting around and waiting can be actually more anxiety provoking than getting answers so even though it's really hard to make the brave choice to go forward and to participate in an assessment I think it's better to have the knowledge and to know than to wonder or to look back and say, what could I have done differently? So if concerns are identified early, I say go through with the assessments and trust yourself and the professional that you see that you guys will come together to make a good choice of what makes sense for your child, be it a young diagnosis or be it monitoring until they get a little bit older.
0: Um, We specifically wanted to talk to you because we've heard uh, great things about uh, your work with families in particular, and you were talking a a bit about feedbacks, and it sounds like you are very attuned to families in that moment and all the mix of emotions that might be happening. And one of the things that we've heard that you talk about is in the feedback piece of things is that nothing about your child actually changes with a diagnosis. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, thank you for your kind words, first of all.
2: Um, I also think that it is actually something I often say to family, so you've received correct information. Um, I, um, you know, I really think that part of what I want the family to know is that getting a diagnosis doesn't change who your child is. The purpose of getting a diagnosis is to help guide treatment and services and supports that families can access and that children can access in order to enhance development, boost developmental trajectories, and, and to help families as well just to receive education and funding that can be beneficial. You know, the child who comes into the assessment with all of the strengths and some of the challenges that they bring is the same child who leads the assessment. And I think that a diagnosis helps to explain and to perhaps almost categorize what the challenges are but the child and who they are and the affection and the silliness and the positivity that children can bring to families doesn't change and i really want families to know that we're seeing that we're seeing the good we know that it's there we hear that it's there and all that good is still there and so your child is still your child and now hopefully over time that this diagnosis will help to um sort of lay out a path going forward or be like a key that opens up doors to access more services
1: um, back to Adrian uh, we're wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your daughter when she was first diagnosed mm-hmm. and maybe some challenges strengths and how things have changed over time
3: goodness um, so when she was first diagnosed she was talking you could say she was she was verbalizing words um, but she wasn't using them meaningfully. Um, And so that, I mean, that in itself was confusing when we first went down this journey of what's going on because when, you know, people would say, well, she's talking, (laughs) but it it didn't mean a whole lot. Um, So it's, I mean, initially there was a lot of, we, she had a lot of difficulty uh, communicating and we had a lot of difficulty understanding (laughs) Um, and so there was a lot of what I now know to have been anxiety on her part and frustration on her part that looked a lot like a garden variety tantrum. Mm-hmm. So that was that, that was most difficult, I think, before the diagnosis because I just assumed that she was either behaving badly or I was doing a, a crappy job parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, after the diagnosis... It was um, a bit easier to put into context her, you know, the, the speed at which she would melt down. Um, but then with that came the appreciation that, well, this is going to take a while. <laughs> like, this isn't just going to go away. Um, she's really dysregulated. She's really upset. She's really outside of herself right now. And um, so it's likely going to take a lot of work on our part to help her regulate Um, so there was, that was exhausting for a long time to, and we spent a lot of time kind of co-regulating with her and literally kind of bouncing her and, and, and whispering to her and, you know, reassuring her that it was going to be okay. And that, you know, we were with her. And, um, so that took a lot of mental energy and physical energy, um, and a lot of detective work when we were, when she was little, because when she would melt down, you'd have that instinctive, like, what happened if it wasn't clear? And in hindsight, now I can see some things that um, were subtle and I didn't understand back then and that were so frustrating because I couldn't figure out why it was she was having a tantrum at this moment. Um, there were instances now where I can look back and realize that. You know, walking into rooms with un- with an, a multitude of unfamiliar people was really difficult for her. And she would literally drop to the ground, throw her head against the floor and start screaming. And I remember, I mean, this happened specifically at like a Thanksgiving dinner. And I was so excited to see everybody. And I walked in to see family and I was ah, and I'm sure my voice didn't help. Um, but she just got so upset and she had probably her worst self-injurious episode that evening and it was it was heartbreaking and so perplexing to try to figure out what the heck had caused this um so just to say that there was a lot of this unknown initially but as we started to understand patterns and see patterns then things got much uh, more easy to, it it got easier to manage because we started decoding her clues and then I could learn to predict what would be difficult and not difficult. So, you know, I, we learned very early on that, um, balloons scare the heck out of her. Mm -hmm. So even walking into a room with a balloon would cause her to, to freak out, to literally start to cry before she could even have the words to say, like, I hate balloons. Um, so we learned that we, you know, didn't do birthday parties with balloons or we'd go to, you know, a birthday party home, but just not go into the room with the balloon. Um, so as we started to understand her better, then it felt like we could manage situations better and she would react less because she was being, you know, put in situations that would, um, cause her a lot of anxiety, a lot less. So, um, it's to the point now where, um, we as a family are, are much better able to kind of predict what's going to work for her and not. And now she can tell us what's going to work and what's not. Um, she just had a birthday and my, someone suggested that, um, they bring balloons for the birthday. And so I said to Amira's sister, do you think we should have balloons? And she burst out laughing like, no, of course we should not have balloons. <laughs> um, but I thought, you know what, maybe we should ask Amira. Like, I mean, she, she can tolerate being in a room with a balloon now. So I said to her. I said would you like balloons for your birthday and she thought about it and you could see the wheels spinning in her head and and I said maybe not the ones that are on the string that kind of move around and go everywhere what about the ones that are on a stick that we can put you know in a in a vase or something and she went yeah 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 the the ones on a stick I like the ones on a stick and so today like there are balloons in our house and you know five years ago that would have caused her like immense stress so It's just been a a journey of understanding what works for her, what doesn't work for her, and what we can do to support her.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Abby, I want to ask one question here. There are people
1: who uh, may not feel as confident about the physician that they're coming to
0: see that they don't know. What advice would you have for that person where they can have a sense of ownership about this process?
2: I think for a parent coming into this process, I think it starts from the very beginning. If there is a way that the parents, when they hear from their doctor, we are going to send you to Holland Bloorview, I would encourage parents to feel empowered and to advocate for themselves and their child and say why. Why am I being referred? What is this assessment? What is Holland's View? Why am I going there? Um, I think that would be, honestly, if I could say to families just to get that piece, because when families come to me and don't know why they're there, it's difficult, because rather than have those that time to think about, okay, I'm going for this assessment and this is why, it's basically thrown on them in the context of the assessment process, which I feel badly about, because I, I think if families can come in more prepared, it would be helpful for them in in preparing their thoughts, preparing their questions, and in just emotionally preparing them for the experience. So I'd say that if there's a potential to have that advocacy start from the very beginning, um, from the referral source, take that. Um, if a family has that and they're thinking about, you know, what can I do while I'm waiting, I think making some detailed observations about your child's development you know parents don't have to and i don't want parents to sit and be writing everything down because i think that gives produces increased stress rather than reduces it but to really be watching a child's behavior you know what is it that they do well what is it that seems concerning um what is it that i want to know why is this happening so for parents to start making some of those observations and just just watching Another piece that I find helpful, and different clinicians, um, you know, use this differently. But again, especially with the really little ones who maybe aren't in school yet, where we can't gather information from teachers or from other people that know the child well, I think um, I I'll say to parents, bring in a couple videos, like star them on your phone. And bring them in and show me, like, what are some of the good behaviors? And some families bring them, some of those and some families don't. And some families will bring me, you know, this is what it looks like when they play with their cousin. This is what happens when I try to disrupt the line of toys that they've made in the living room. Um, This is what it looks like when he's in the bathtub and having so much fun. So, again, just to get to know what the child looks like outside of the assessment Little box that we've put them in for the purposes of our observations, it's really helpful to have those real world um, thoughts and, and observations prepared. Um, you know, it's always tricky with the internet because I think if somebody says your child may have ASD, then I think parents can start Googling a million different things, some of which can be very scary and many of which are extremely overwhelming. So I'd say if a parent does know why they've been referred. Um, reaching out to credible sources in order to look at, you know, what are the early signs of ASD? I'm going to start making my observations based on these checklists that come from a reputable website or a reputable source. Um, And finally, I think um, for most of the young ones referred, I think a referral for speech and language therapy is a strong recommendation that we always have and a service that, like ours, has a waiting list. So for families to make sure that they're on the waiting list for the publicly funded speech and language services, I think is a really important step as well.
0: Um, Dr. Abby, how do you know what parents really hear when you're telling them that their child has ASD?
2: There is actually few things about my job that I wish I knew more than the answer to that question. (laughs) So often I you know, I want to turn around to parents at the end of my hour to two hour discussion with them and say, like, so how was that for you? You know, what could I do differently? What could I do better? Like, please give me feedback, because I just want to, I just want to make this the best experience for the parents, despite the fact that it's such a difficult um, experience. Now, obviously, I don't ask those questions, because it's not the time or the place. And I think, um, as Adrian was talking about, I mean, there's so many different emotions that come at different stages of the di- of understanding the diagnosis and thinking about what goes forward. But, you know, I've really um, reflected myself on how is the best way to communicate the diagnosis to the parent? At what point in my feedback should I tell the parent that I believe that it's ASD? Um, and I've gone through a lot of reflection on my own, thinking about when do I think The parents are best able to attend to that information and what are they attending to afterwards one of the things i think that i work hard to do in the feedback is constantly pause and check in with families and see if they are with me i think there's that constant you know leaving space for questions if parents want to ask something i i invited at any point during the feedback at which point I will either address it immediately or write it down so that they are sure that I'm going to come back to it later. So I think the best way that you can make sure that they're hearing you and following along with you is just constantly checking in with them to see where they're at and what they're thinking. Um, I also am aware that if I'm talking for a really prolonged period of time, that they're not retaining everything that I'm saying. And I'll actually say that in a very straightforward way to parents. You know, I'll say, I know that this is a lot of information. I know you're not going to leave here remembering all of it. And please don't put that expectation on yourself that you will. Um, here's my number. Here's my email. You will get a copy of a report. Please continue to be in touch. And I think it's really important as a professional to realize that there's just too much happening for everything to be taken in at once. And I think that that's okay. And that you families should know that that's okay and that they can always come back to you in order to help to clarify and to understand things better i think the other thing to do in order to help prepare families for receiving the diagnosis is that from the very time that i start the assessment i feel like i'm helping to prepare them for what may come up later on in the feedback so as you know there are families who come in who are very aware of why they've been referred and why they're there And then there are families who come in who really are very unsure about why their doctor sent them to this um, clinic at Holland Bloorview and what we're all about. So I see it as my job from the beginning to be very straightforward with parents and to be very upfront with parents and say, this is why you've been referred. Are you aware of that? Do you understand what that means? Then going through, there's a question about ASD. What is ASD? And giving a brief description of that. And then going as I go through the developmental history and as I go through my observation, really giving parents feedback and details on what I'm seeing or not seeing and why something is a strength or why something is concerning and what it means throughout, and weaving that throughout the diagnostic process so that when you get to the feedback, and you do have to share that there is a diagnosis, it's not something that's coming totally out of the blue at that point. It's a conclusion that I've been leading them to from the time that an assessment started, so that they are prepared and see this as a collaborative process, not just me delivering information that um, doesn't have a basis to it. So I think part of the whole process is really setting them up from the beginning and helping parents to see from the beginning what I'm going to be doing, being very transparent, sharing my observations, and helping to process that along the way so that when I get to the diagnosis, it's not something completely new or foreign to them.
0: I wanna I wanna go back to something you said, uh, Doctor Abby. You'd mentioned like, you know, that, that pausing and taking time to make sure like are your parents with you, right? And one of the things that I've found personally when I'm, I'm doing feedbacks too is also to be aware that I'm with them. Like the the reverse of that. Like one of the big learning experiences I think for me has been um feeling like It all has to come out in a feedback session, if that makes sense, where I'm like giving time and space and I'm thinking that there's going to be this reaction. And I'm like, okay, so this person is is feeling some loss, is upset. There's tears and stuff like that. And then there are lots of situations when then that parent almost like a light switch goes off and they kind of like close up shop with their feelings. And then they're like, so what do we do? Right. And I think that's where I then have to, like, take their cue and then uh, they're kind of leading the train because that's not maybe the moment that they want to have those feelings. And maybe I'm not the person that they want to have those feelings with.
2: Absolutely. And I think a lot of trainees, what I've noticed is they're expecting that big reaction and they're waiting for it. And I think we have to remember our role in that situation. You know, our role is not... um, Emotion, the person who's there to provide ongoing emotional or therapeutic support. Um, our goal is to look at this query of ASD and to give the families what they're showing us that they need in that moment.
0: Yeah. I want to go back for the last question to you, Adrienne. Um, at this point, how would you describe Amira, age nine?
3: Oh, goodness. it's, uh, it's Now I can speak about her with such joy and excitement. And um, she is... She's very funny, she's very intuitive, Um, she's really sensitive, and she's very capable. And we didn't always appreciate that. And now that some of the difficulties associated with ASD have calmed and some have resolved, um, we're able to see um, her abilities, her talents, her strengths, and... We're able to see um, how much joy she has outside of when things are difficult and stressful. So, uh, I mean, she still has a lot of anxiety. I Absolutely. Um, but we can start to see kind of the full breadth of, of her abilities, strengths, and quirks, and really neat things now that she's a bit older. So at this point... I like I wake up in the morning and I'm excited to interact with her and to joke around with her Um, and if I'm really honest that wasn't always true and I remember I can feel in my body what it used to feel like to go from a state of um, blissful sleep to waking up to her crying or moaning and how that felt in regards to like the stress that I that was coming from my belly up into my throat and I just remember thinking thinking for that split second before that stress hit, like, oh, everything's fine. And then for that reality to hit when I heard her struggling, it just it, it was a it was a really overwhelming feeling and it made kind of greeting the day and greeting her really difficult. Um but at this point we she is able to manage so much better and I'm able to manage so much better that despite the fact that I know that there will be stresses and there probably isn't one day without tears. We have tears. Um, I get excited about what I know is going to go well and what I am going to learn about her because we're starting to peel away the layers and understand parts of her that are just so cool and fun that we haven't had access to before.
0: Yeah, I, I've i been really lucky to have actually worked with Amira too in the last few months as well. And so uh, all those things that you mentioned, like the sense of humor, like the just like thoughtful insight, she's really like a great observer and contemplator and stuff like that as well. And, uh, you know, in the description that you've you've given us about earlier time periods it's like i don't i don't even recognize that girl with the girl that i was meeting with like in the last couple of months so it's really interesting how that's changed over time
3: yeah she's had an amazing trajectory there were no firework moments it all happened very slowly and steadily and there were definitely regressions um but it has it has gone in a really amazing direction um because she struggles less but i think also because we accept her more and we look for the things that are going well and we celebrate the things that are going well and we don't get so bound up with the things that are difficult for her because we just know that's that's how her brain is wired and the these are the things that she you know she's going to need to work with um and we don't get so upset about and focused on those particular things, and we spend more time celebrating and looking for the things that make her excited and and um, and happy about her own life.
0: Yeah, I think if I could sum her up in two words, mm-hmm. if I had to do it. Nobody's forcing me, but I will. I would I would say cool and creative. Aww. Actually. When when I was working with her, um, she was actually talking about her interests. She's got a lot of interests. And one of those interests is listening to podcasts.
3: Yes. <laughs> she, yes. Loves, she loves she listening to podcasts. She
0: does. Yeah. And I was surprised like the variety and stuff like that. And actually talking with her and listening to her interests and her enthusiasm and how much she was soaking up from those podcasts actually planted the seed mm-hmm for this podcast series so (laughs) it's actually yeah we're here because of amira
3: oh thank you oh my gosh that'll mean so much to her she yeah she does love podcasts and and she gets out of them so much more than i ever imagined she would so if you know if other parents and other people can get even a fraction of what you know i know she gets from soaking that in then that'll be really exciting and a testament to her so thank you yeah
0: So we could probably talk about uh, these topics for hours. Um, I'm sure certain things that have come up that will lead to more conversation in later episodes. We so appreciate having both Dr. Solish, Dr. Abby, and Adrian sharing their perspectives on what can be happening when a child is diagnosed with ASD. If you've listened to this episode and have comments or ideas that you'd like to share with us regarding future episodes or what you heard today feel free to email us at asdengage at hollandbloorview.ca.